All right. Just in case you guys missed it, like five minutes ago, we are doing baptisms today. Now, sometimes people feel awkward about baptisms. They're like, oh, I don't want to go there. Somebody else's baptism. Seriously, this is what our baptisms look like. Okay? So, essentially, that's you. That is you, Frank. And so... And that's, that's Trevor in the pool. So anyway, we want all of you to come. All of you. There are maps on all the communion tables throughout the room. Please, please, please feel free to come. We are barbecuing. The only thing you need to bring is a dessert, maybe a lawn chair if you don't want your butt to get wet in the lawn. But seriously, come. We will, we will feed you. We will have a great time watching each other get baptized. It's, it's just, it's going to be great. Uh, here's another, there's another picture right there. See? Lots of people standing around, the family together doing these things. So you guys should all come to baptisms. One o'clock. Parking on the street, walk a long ways. We could probably all use it, but you'll get there. All right. Backyard, go in the side gate. There'll be signs. Baptism. One o'clock. Don't be late. Uh, no, today you can't feed the dog because she will fart all night long. But her leg's getting a little bit better, so you probably can play with her. And if you don't, she will drop the ball right in the middle of your food plate. So you better throw it for her. That's how it works. Okay, why don't you guys stay on the arena, God's Word. We will get started here. This is Luke 17, verse 32. And it simply says, remember Lot's wife. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this morning we would be a people who remember your grace and your goodness. Uh, that the times where we stumble and fall would not define us, but we could move past those into places that you have called us to. That we would worship you in goodness and grace because you are a good God. Amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> All right, so we are going through the book of Genesis. We have come to one of the most difficult sections in the scriptures to deal with in regard to our, our, our hard hearts. Uh, the need for repentance and our sin. And the reason I say one of the hardest sections in Scripture is that if you look, chapter 16, 17, 18, and 19 are literally one section. Now, I know if you look at them in your Bibles, you got, you got chapters and verse divisions. The chapter divisions came about in the 1200s. The verse divisions came about in the 1500s for the sole purpose that we could all be on the same page. When I say open to Genesis 19, verse 30, you would know where to go. It's like an address on your house. Dominoes wouldn't know where you lived if you didn't have an address. So we did this to make it easier. But in this account, 16, 17, 18, and 19 all go together to form one account. Next week, a new narrative begins to take place, but all these go together from circumcision to covenant to God coming to dinner to showing what salvation is meant to look like to God foreshadowing damnation at Sodom and Gomorrah to what we saw last week where God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. But what happens today to me is something I find even more disturbing than anything that's happened so far because the same flaming rotar that flew out of heaven that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah didn't fall on everyone in this event and take them all out. I don't get that. Today's text is brutal. I struggle with this text a lot. In the New Testament, Peter calls Lot a righteous man only by the grace of God. I have no other idea how that happens because in what happens today, he has sex with his daughters. This is the first recorded case of incest. Probably not the first case, the first recorded one. And I believe God put this story here so we would, should, and could learn a lesson through a very disturbing account. Now, what I want to do to start this off is I want to show you some dads and their daughters. Hey, this is Jonathan. He's being run over in the backyard by his daughters. Ah, it's always kind of fun. Uh, this is Jeremy, his two kids. We, we had another photo, but I like this one better because the little one's crawling up his back. Uh, okay, this, right, this, this is Eric. <laughs> it's very manly. Just want you to know that. All right. Uh, 
This is now here. Go next one, next one, next one. See, it's like time lapse, <laughs> kind of like that. Okay, here. This, next one. Uh, this is AJ. The one on the left looks a little scared. I don't know why. <laughs> and this is Donald with his little girls. See, what you have to understand is that this this father and daughters. This is a blessed thing from God. Dads love their daughters more than anything. And how disgusting it is to pervert something like that. Girls need love and affection. Boys need like food, water, and air. Don't even really need shelter, right? <laughs> the girls need love and shoes and handbags and lotion and affection. And if you have a daughter, you make sure she gets all that from her dad because she doesn't get it from a dad. She's going to get it from some other guy, and you do not want that happening. So you tell a daughter she is beautiful and lovely and worthwhile so she sees herself through your eyes. If you become a dad, it's a big deal that you love God and raise your daughters in the Lord. I believe that God wants every guy in this room and every guy on this planet to be a patriarch. You say, well, what's a patriarch? Well, essentially it comes down that it's someone who loves God and gives his life away eventually for his wife his kids, his neighbors, his friends. He gives himself away as Jesus gave himself up for the church so people would benefit, that we would be a blessing to the entire earth. Well, you see in the scriptures that God made us male and female, different but equal, but different. Ladies, when you marry a guy, you quickly find out he is different. Or if you will get married, you'll find out they are different. Or if you have brothers and you're a girl, you know they are different. Girls don't pee in the yard. Boys pee anywhere they can write their name. You know, girls, you, you won't know why guys do half the things that they do. Why they flex in the mirror. Why they want to pee with no hands. Why they talk about how big their poop is. We don't know. It just, it just comes out of us. But girls are distinctly different than boys. Ephesians 6, 4 says parents are to raise their children in the Lord. So your goal is to raise your child. You don't raise them all the same. They're all different. But the main point is that a dad needs to be connected to Jesus. And to do this, a dad needs wisdom from God and the daughter needs to be able to receive wisdom, love, protection, and hope. In the section today, Lot has two daughters. He may have had more, but these are the two that are left after Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm sure when they were little, he loved them, he played with them, he snuggled with them. But somewhere, it all goes wrong. He never imagined he would be grandpa dad to the same kid. All right? As we talk about this, you've got to put a face on it so you understand it for it being as sick as it actually is. So this is how it works. God comes, he talks to Adam. And Adam messes up. God still offers him grace. He says, now, Adam, even though you've messed up, you need to teach your children, those that come after you, who I am. And so you get to a guy named Noah. God offers him grace. Says, Noah, you need to teach your children who I am. You get to Abraham. God offers him grace. You need to teach your children who I am. And when you find Lot in the text, he's just a tag along and he's a folly and he doesn't teach his children who God is. He chooses first to live next to Sodom because it was good for business, not his family. Then he chooses to move into Sodom and he buys a house there. And apparently nobody in Sodom knows he's even a follower of God, a lot like Christians today. And God destroys the city of Sodom and Gomorrah for the way they dehumanized people who were there. Lot barely gets out. And this is by God's grace again that God drags him out of the city. His wife looks back in longing and she becomes covered in salt and dies. This will be important in just a little bit. Open your Bibles to Genesis 19. I've got a lot to tell you today, so I'm going to go quick. 
even for me, and I'm really sorry for that, but I want to give you some insights as we do this. The first one is this. Men, if you are not married, you must take seriously the question who you will marry. You do not just marry a girl because she's hot. I mean, you should think she's hot because they really appreciate that, but that should not be the only reason. You must want marry a woman who loves God and will be a good mother. You've got to ask, what type of mother will she be? Will she be the kind of woman you can point your girls to and say, be like your mom? Girls, same thing. When you marry a guy, can you point your boys to him and say, be like your dad? Girls, you don't, guys, you don't marry a girl who is consumed with trying to look cool because she will turn 50, try to act like she's 20, and she will compete with your daughters. Can you point to her with your daughters and say, be like your mom? Can you point your boys to her and say, marry someone like your mom? This is like kind of what we talked about in the whole baby dedication. I mean, guys, you've got to ask the question, does she respect you? And then the other side of that is, are you respectable? If she has a bad mouth and she disrespects you, your kids are going to be the same way. If she is a flirt and perverted, so your kids will be. Parents, you must model for your kids. Lot marries a godless woman, and her kids ended up just like her. So Genesis 19.30 starts like this. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, so it's a hillbilly story right off the top. For he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Now, we're not told why he was afraid. It's probably, in my mind, because Sodom and Gomorrah was a story. He got out. They see him for the, as the reason for this, so they're probably going to want to kill him, and he's afraid about that. In the beginning, he moves to a sinful place because he thought it would be lucrative. Now he runs to a place of a cave because he's afraid. Another good question to ask yourselves if you're a family is where will you live? Where will you live? A lot of people pick a place because it financially looks good or there's nice weather. But even if all that's great, you know, what can still happen in the end of that is your wife can go to hell and your daughters turn into perverts. That's not a good place to live if that happens. I mean, if you're afraid to even move, that's also an issue as well. But sometimes there's too high of a cost for living in a place where you shouldn't be living. Where will you raise your family? I mean, Lot maybe could have done better if he evangelized to people around him, but he didn't. Not even his own family gets saved. When God's pulling him out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he originally tells Lot to go to the hills. Why does he tell Lot to go to the hills? Who's in the hills? Abraham. Abraham's in the, in the hills. The believer is in the hills, though he's very imperfect. Lot didn't go to fellowship with believers, it, and it caused devastation in his life. He goes from Sodom to Zoar to a cave, no fellowship. It matters where you live and what church you attend and who you fellowship your lives with. I see this all the time. So many guys, after they graduate high school, they run off. I'm never going back to Santa Maria again. Or they get married and they, and they run off and they, and they never go to church and their life turns into a crisis. Happens to married couples all the time. Who will be the families that your family does life with? Because it matters. This is why we push gospel communities all the time. Verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. So what they're talking about is sex. I'll just, they could have just said it, but they didn't. They make a very long explanation for it. This is sex, not marriage. Very Santa Maria High School, right? I know. Right? Now, why are they like this? Because they grew up in a corrupted society where their dad did nothing to encourage a healthy sexual identity. I mean, what does the dad do last week? There's this mob at the door. They want to rape the people inside. And he says, here, take my daughters, rape them instead. I mean, that is not a, guy, a dad who values his daughters or holds them in high esteem. These women even had fiancés in this city, and they're part of this group outside. In this day, Lot's day, dads would pick the men for their daughters to marry. That's Lot's job. Did he put his daughters in a place where there were decent men to marry? 
No, not at all. Did he take them to church? Did he introduce them to Abraham and his church? So they reach marrying age. They have a desire. All the men are gone and they have sex with their dad and is sick and it is disturbing. But the girls are not victims. They make their own decisions. But Lot is held majorly responsible for this event. We know this because his name is listed and not theirs. Lot was supposed to create a world where his daughters could be raised and they'd be safe and they'd hear the truth and be healthy. This is important to God because you, as parents, will make the world your children live in. I, when I was writing this message, it was actually last year at Thanksgiving. I know I, I really far ahead. Trust me, I got it. Okay. Over Thanksgiving, and I'm talking to my brother, and my, my niece, Sierra, tells me she, well, she's talking, says she has this boyfriend, and I'm like, what? You got a boyfriend? You're going to be single your whole life. Don't you know that? Boys don't touch you. Anyway, so, so I'm talking about, and, and, and I'm like, so, so what's his name? Where does he live? You know, how, how's he going to support you when he gets older? She's in high school, by the way. You know, how, you know, so I'm asking, like, my brother's like, you just need to back off and stop it. And I'm like, well, she's like, I'm her dad. I'll take, I live vicariously through him a lot. So that's kind of what it looks like. And so I kind of end the conversation like this. Okay, tell you what, I'll pray that you don't get caught if you have to kill him. That's kind of how I end it, right there. We live in a world, weird world where we think honoring kids' decisions means letting them do whatever they want, and it's not. Verse 32, come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. There's got to be a plan B, but whatever. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Lucas Van Leyden in the 1500s uh, painted a portrait of what he thought this looked like. You see Sodom and Gomorrah burning in the background, and in the front, you see Lot grew up and his daughter, and the other one pouring wine for them to drink. Is Lot responsible for this? He didn't know when she came in or when she arose. Is he responsible? Yes, he is responsible. He's an imbecile who is drinking with his daughters. Some kids think, well, I got the cool dad. You know, he buys alcohol for me. That dad is a fool. Yes, the daughters are nasty. It's like Paris Hilton on a crack vacation. We got that. But you got to look at the dad in this. He marries an unbeliever, lived in a godless town, forsook fellowship with believers, and he's getting drunk with his teenage daughters. Some guys think that's cool. It's not cool. Men, if you don't get your head on straight about the sanctity of women, it will corrupt, it'll corrupt you relating to the opposite sex. This is why pornography is so destructive. You're looking at all these young girls. One day your daughter's gonna grow up and she's gonna be that age. Her friends are gonna be that age. And your mind's not gonna know what to do with it. You gotta get your head on straight about the sanctity of women. Or it's gonna corrupt you relating to the opposite sex. It'll corrupt you relating, uh, raising your daughter and corrupt your daughter's self-image. I mean, does this story get your attention yet? Yeah. Verse 34. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Like that's something to brag about. You'd be like, I don't know what I did. She's, uh, let us make him drink wine tonight also. They live in a cave, but they brought the booze. This is a dysfunctional family. All right. If you don't know, this is what dysfunction looks like. You know, we don't have a couch, but we got liquor. All right. Then you go in and lie, lie with him. Like, that's going to make it any better. That we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And the Bible speaks about this as being deplorable. And if you read this and you aren't horrified by this, then there's something wrong with you. Because this is also a lot like our society. Lot's daughters disconnected, marriage, sex, and children. This is the result, verse 36. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. That's one of the last portraits you see of Lot in the scriptures, him holding his son slash grandson on his knee. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. I believe the story is here to wake us up that we don't get serious about our life and our family and our future. There's going to be nothing for you and I to pass on. 
But it's like Paul Harvey, if you're used to Paul, used to say, this is not the rest of the story. Okay, there's more to the story. Maybe in your life you have had a crazy life. I'm not like Lot, hopefully, but you've had a crazy life. How can God or will God bring any redemption to this situation? Well, what I want to do this morning is I'm going to relate to you a totally unrelated story and try and put them together so they relate, especially if you feel like you've screwed up your life or someone has done something evil to you and you just can't get past that. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. As Lot is fleeing Sodom, his wife stops, looks back in longing. The text tells you, but Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. She's probably hit with the slab of flaming rotar that came out of heaven. She's instantly fossilized like the ground around the town. Actually, the Roman-slash-Jewish historian Josephus claimed to have seen the pillarized memorial of her. Now, the Bible never mentions Lot's wife by name. The rabbis actually call her idit, like you're an idit. It actually means witness. She, she witnessed these things. Because the rabbis conclude that she was also complicit in the act of Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened to the angels while they were in the town. Uh, one Midrash, Midrash is a Jewish commentary on, on the Old Testament, uh, Genesis Rabbah 50 verse 4, talks about how Lot brings these people into his home and she doesn't want him there. And she actually says, do you wish to learn this bad habit from Abraham, meaning protecting people and inviting them in? And he's like, just go get some salt so he can make some food and take care of the guests. So she goes around to all the people in town. She says, oh yeah, we have some guests in our house that were harboring that didn't come through the city council the right way. So uh, can I borrow some salt for them? And she goes to everybody in the town and does this, so it stirs up the entire town to come and to do this and sin against these people in Lot's house. They believe she sinned through salt. And what you see throughout most, much of the scriptures is that salt is very important. I don't think it's insignificant that before they get to the cave and all this happens, it starts with mom becoming a pillar of salt. So I'm going to read this story in Second Kings to you. It is totally unrelated, right? But we're going to make it relate. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 19. Now the men of the city, that's the city of Jericho, said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant. We got nice weather. As my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. So the water makes the place unfruitful. He said, that's Elisha, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now you're going, this has nothing to do with what we just read. Right, trust me. I know where we're going. I'm a professional. We'll bring it together. All right. This is a standalone story in Second Kings. Have you ever read a, Bible, a story in the Bible like the one in Second Kings and you're like, what's going on? It's like this terrible problem, and can you help? Sure, give me some salt. There, everything's better. It's like, that makes no sense at all. Jericho has a complicated history, a lot like Lot. And this story with Genesis and with Lot and everything that goes on in the story in Second Kings is rooted in what we would call a pre-modern consciousness. Now, today we have cars and computers and Internet and iDevices, and we see ourselves as sophisticated moderns. When we read the scriptures, it's written from a pre-modern consciousness, meaning no one had been to the moon. There's no Mars rovers going around checking things out. And so what we deem many things that we read in the scriptures, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter to me at all. But we find patterns and ways now people think, because it's, and it's just odd to our modern minds. And sometimes when you read it, you've got to remember that, too. Right? You've got to let it be strange. You don't always explain it in a 2012 American mindset, if that brings some clarity, right? Crickets, good. All right, we're good. All right, so Jericho, where this, where this whole story happens with Elisha, was conquered earlier by a na- man named Joshua. Now, if anybody watch the World Cup soccer? Anybody? World Cup? All right, so none of you do. All right, in, in World Cup soccer... Uh, if you ever watch uh, what they have in these games, these flugelhorns, and people sit in the crowd and they're all, right? 
And it just, it's kind of like Kenny G. He just blows all the time. And it just... Or whatever. Okay. So, so they're blowing this. And essentially, Joshua conquers Jericho by flugelhorns. It's, it's very interesting story. So and he conquers and he pronounces a curse. Joshua 6, 6. It's after he conquers Jericho, he says, Curse before the Lord, being the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So in the history of Jericho, there is a conqueror who says, anybody who tries to rebuild this city is going to be cursed. To our modern minds, we hear them like, oh, that's voodoo hoodoo. That's just, that's just dumb stuff. But this curse is very specific. You do this and your firstborn is going to die. The firstborn is the one that carries on your family line. This is the biggest hurt you can inflict on somebody. You do this and this will happen. You go get some magic curse, your firstborn dies. Now, if you go from Joshua to 1 Kings 16, Israel becomes a nation at this point. And they've had a series of bad kings. You have a guy named Ahab who is called evil. And then Ahab allows this one guy to rebuild Jericho. In 1 Kings 16, verse 34, it says, In his days, hell, that's how you say it, but hell, kind of sounds like hell, I know, uh, of Bethel built Jericho. So you have Ahab over and over called evil. And one of the king, things this king does is says, oh, there's a city, uh, Jericho, and there's a curse on it. We'll all rebuild that city. And this is what it says. Uh, and he laid its foundation at the cost of Ibram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So Jericho has this history of this curse. You, you rebuild it, and it's not going to go well for you. Open your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'll just let you. Apparently, nobody's turning there. Okay, whatever. All right. <laughs> the idea of a curse is something Israel is very familiar with. You know, this, as strange as it sounds, there's a series of blessings and curses. People thought, this is how I relate to God in this. So you follow God, things go well. You turn away, things go bad. Look at the story of Lot. That's things going bad. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1 says this. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. You follow God, things go well, your crops grow, the heavens open, you're strong, you're skinny, you're good looking. Okay, verse 28, chapter 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commands and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Verse 17, cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Verse 18, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration. Then it gets worse. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Verse 28, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. Verse 69, the Lord will give you Kim Kardashian, reality TV, and country music. It just gets worse and worse. It just builds. No one on recess is going to pick you first for their team. No one on the playground is going to like you. And it goes on and on and on. But if you get to chapter 30, verse 1. And it says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I have commanded you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, and the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. Now you read all these crazy curses and stuff, but at the end, if you return, everything is restored. Disobey God, consequences, return, restored. In the people's consciousness at the time of Elisha is this idea of this history that they would be carrying with them of Joshua and Ahab of firstborn sons and youngest sons and blessings and curses and the favor of God. All of this is swirling around this town. You ever start a new job and you walk and you're like, there is a weird vibe here. 
right? Or you get married and you go to your spouse's family reunion and it's like, man, this is weird. Something's going on. You're like, what? And then someone goes up and he goes, oh, well, let me explain to you what's going on. You're like, oh, now it makes sense. That's messed up, all right? You know, why does someone always react poorly? Why does someone not react to anything at all? Jericho has this history of this and this and this happened. And Elisha is told the water is bad, the land is unfruitful. It goes to the curses of Deuteronomy. And Elisha says, bring me a new bull. The word for new is the Hebrew word hadesh. And it has lots of meanings. It means renewed when it refers to a spirit or a kingdom or a life, a renewed life. It means rebuild when it refers to a city or a kingdom. It means repair, meaning new songs and new covenants and new mercies. It's not a new bowl that a potter just made. This is a hadesh bowl. Bring me a hadesh bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Salt, again, you find all throughout the scriptures. It could be a sign of judgment like Lot's wife. You see it as judgment in Judges 9 or Jeremiah 48. But it also had positive connotations to it. In Mark 5, or Matthew 5 and Mark 9, you and I are to be salt and light to the world. We are God's ambassadors and we're to taste good. It, we're, like, we're like sunflower seeds. Nobody, unless you're a weirdo, buys sunflower seeds without salt on them. Because the only reason you buy sunflower seeds is to suck the salt off them. Exactly. Someone first said, or margaritas. But whatever. Okay, so, so we're going with sunflower seeds, though, all right? So sunflower seeds, this is the idea. We're, we're to be sunflower seeds to the world because salt is a, seen as a positive thing. This is also in Job 6, Colossians 4, Numbers 18. In Leviticus 2, you see it as part of a ritual, uh, the ritual sacrificial system. Leviticus 2.13 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. I mean, do you catch that? You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. Salt is connected with covenant. And what was the covenant? Well, by the time you get through the Torah and through the end of the Old Testament, what you realize, it means that no matter where you find yourself, how bad it gets, how hard your heart was, you can always return and follow God. No matter how bad you screwed up, no matter how many destructive choices you have made, no matter how seriously you have lost your way or other gods you have worshipped, no matter how bad a father or mother you have been or how bad a father or mother that you had you can always return god restores people the salt of the covenant represents this new start an everlasting covenant of salt see people back then they're a lot like us they're tactile we call this kinesthetic today it's a nice word that says touch salt was something you touched We sometimes need physical things to remind us of larger realities. This is why we do baptisms. Baptism is symbolically understanding that we are dead and buried to our old life, and we are raised to walk in new life with Jesus Christ. That's baptism. Salt could also help these people remember that no matter where they were, God was calling them home. And see, Lot's wife turns around, pillar of salt, because she turned and she was, that's not the direction I have for you. You get to Elisha, and he steps into this very complicated history where the water is diseased. He says, bring me a new bowl and put some salt in it. He went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day. Here's the picture. This is the water that has been healed. You can still drink from it. And this is it as it, as it runs through the, the old city now. It is still there, and the water is actually good. Elisha throws salt in the water and says, it's done. It is done. 
But you've got to understand from Sodom to Lot to Jericho to today, in regard to sin, you have to understand two things. Number one is this. History does not decide. It only describes. For Elijah and even Lot, the history does not decide the present or the future. The history merely describes what happened. It doesn't say what will or has to happen. Your history describes what you've done, where you've been, what's been done to you, who you've been involved with. Your history describes your past. It does not decide your present or future. Too many people let the past decide your future. It is not set. With Jesus, all things are new and renewed. Elijah's like, curses, bring me a bowl and some salt. He doesn't say, tell me about your disobedience or your sins. He says, bring me some salt and we're going to move on. It's a new day. One commentator says, Elisha ushers in a whole new era for these people. The second thing in regard to sin you've got to understand is that curses are made to be broken. Curses are made to be broken. You're like, well, I know what everyone says. It's always going to be this way. No. New things can happen that break the patterns of the old. God can break the chains that hold us all in our sin. You may think your situation is hopeless, but God's new words can always be spoken. And so we, and when we as moderns read this story about curses and dismiss it, we're not understanding we are the exact same way. We just like to think we're more enlightened. See if this sounds familiar to you. Uh, I just can't get a break. This thing always happens to me. Like I expected anything else. It's inevitable. We're not as modern as we think. We've not come as far as we think. How about this? Well, it's just my luck. Really? You got luck and it's just yours and nobody else's? Really? And if you, did, did you ever lose your luck and have bad luck? Well, did you keep the receipt? I mean, how, how is anything inevitable? How does something always happen? It doesn't. What we've done is we take little bits and pieces of the story and we put them together to get our own outcome. And what you see with the idea of salt in the water is you can take the correct bits and pieces of the story and get a completely different outcome, one where God has been involved the entire time. Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The question comes down to who is your God? Because Jesus really can bring hope to any situation. And it doesn't have to be how you think it has to be. With Lot, leaving the city starts with salt, goes to Zoar, to a cave, and all this incest. After Lot, if you keep reading the scriptures, you eventually get to a young woman. Her name is Ruth. It's actually a book of the Bible named after her. Ruth is a Moabite. A dad from Israel moves down to live among the Moabites. His sons marry Moabite women, non-followers. The first one's name is Orpah. One guy likes to call her Oprah because she's a godless woman who claims she loves God. <laughs> Too far, right? Okay. The other one... The other one, her name is Ruth. Now the father and the sons die. Naomi, the mom, is much smarter than Lot. She says, I'm going to go back and live with God's people. She tells the girls, just go your own way. Orpah says, okay, goodbye. Ruth says, no, I love you. I've come to love your God. I'm going to your people. They pull into town. She, uh, Ruth goes out and tries to help her mother-in-law eat, and she meets this guy named Boaz. He is a godly single guy who treats women well. He falls in love with Ruth. She falls in love with him. Beautiful love story. Maybe we'll preach through that some week over 70 weeks. I don't know, whatever, but we'll get there someday. They have a baby boy. His name is Obed. Obed has a baby boy named Jesse. Jesse has a baby boy named David who becomes King David, and through King David's line comes Jesus. In Matthew, the genealogy of Matthew tells you Ruth, a Moabite, is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. When you get to Obed, his mom, Moabite, descendant of Lot on his mom's side, descendant of Abraham on his father's side. They have Obed, Jesse, David, eventually leads to Jesus. A new baby is a new life, is a new bull. A new bull. 
And God can redeem any situation, even lots, even Jericho's, and even yours. Because everything in Scripture is about Jesus. If you come from an awful family, made awful decisions, there is always hope. This is why we talk about communion every week, because it's about hope. You break that cracker like his body is broken for you. You dip in the wine and the grape juice, reminding us of his blood that has been shed for you and I, because it is about hope and restoration and being restored. But also on every communion table this morning, there is a plate of salt. And if you have something in your life that you can't get past that is defining who you are, you take a pinch of that salt, there's a bucket of water to the side. And you throw that salt in the water and be done. Stop commiserating over it. Realize that Jesus has redeemed you and set you free and intended for you to walk in freedom and new life. That's what he intends for you. Throw the salt in the water and be done and be done. And then live your life as salt and light to the world. The band's going to come up. We do a couple songs, and as we do, take communion, throw salt in the water. Uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer for anything, maybe you're at this place where it's like, i got to throw salt in the water this morning, but I need prayer too. Go and pray with them. They would love to pray with you. There's offering boxes on the side wall and in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship, and so we give you the opportunity every week to do that. Um, also, fellowship, guys, uh, there's food in the back, uh, but I will tell you, uh, in the whole idea of fellowship, fellowship means that we are salt and light to the world. So go be sunflower seeds or margaritas, whatever you like better. Just go out there and be that to the people in the world because you are living the grace of Christ in your life today. And I know there's food in the back, but you need to come to baptisms. You do. You've got to support the family and be part of it. Huge party, Labor Day. Look, the sun's out. It's going to be great. Bring a lawn chair. Play with my dog. Throw somebody in the pool. It's all for good fun. It's all good fun, okay? I, I, my backyard can hold about 300 people, so you're all going to be fine. We're going to be good. Okay, come to baptisms and enjoy this together because we, as God's people, salt and light, our God has given us great, great grace. We live in freedom, and the idea that we live in freedom today means that we are free to worship our great God who has saved and redeemed his people. And so we, as a people together, do that. Salt in the water, move on with your life. Your sins are in your past. Your grace is in your future. It is God who has given it to us to make it so. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who understand that you paid for our sins at the cross and that our future is not determined by the sins of our past but by the great God who came and saved us. That our hearts and our lives should be those that worship you in all that we are. Father, all that you've done at the cross and at your resurrection, you are the hope of our lives, the hope of the world. And I ask that we would understand better living in a place of salt and light so that you are glorified and your name is raised high and that we step away from all the stuff that has held us down and step into the glorious freedom that you have promised us as your children. You are a great and a good God. Have us worship you as such, understanding the fullness of the grace you have given to us. Thank you for saving and loving us. Amen.